Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Andrew's taking a very well-deserved vacation, so I'll be introducing this week's pod. My name's Sydney, and I'm the podcast producer. We were lucky enough to have Neil Lewis join us for our ninth episode. He's the VP of Hospitality with Turner Hospitality Group, which owns and operates a number of very popular restaurants in Blue Mountain Village and in Thornbury. Twist Cocktail and Kitchen, Magnioni's, Winifred's, Mother Tongue, sound familiar? Together, these businesses provide over 120 employee opportunities in the community. In this episode, Neil guides us through his experience in the hospitality industry, the key factors in running a successful restaurant, his relocation to Blue Mountain in 2015, and his position as director for our local Blue Mountain Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you enjoy. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm doing great, Andrew. Yourself? I'm excellent. You and I, uh, I think, share a fair bit in common. We've both really grown up in the hospitality business and in the tourism sector. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit how you got started in the industry. Well, like most, I, I fell into the industry. I always loved hosting events, planning celebrations with friends and family. I had actually wanted to be a music teacher, but um, my passion for music, I, I didn't want to uh, lose it by making it a career. So I chose to go to school for food and beverage management and I took up bartending, found my way into management. And, uh, and here we are almost, almost 20 years later. And I still love every minute of it. Amazing. What, what did you take in music? Were you, did you play an instrument? I played the piano um, and I, uh, and vocal music as well. So you, you you spent a fair bit of time working in the GTA Uh, You went to school in the GTA, Uh, but at some point around 2015 or so, you and your family decided to uh, relocate to the South Georgian Bay region. Why did you choose this region to be your home? I had actually grown up outside London, Andrew, on a a small farm uh, in Dorchester. Eventually wanted to get out of small town life and moved to Toronto for school. Ended up working with some large restaurant brands there. Then... As most, you you gravitate back to your roots. So I was looking for a way to get out of the city and to get put some roots down with a family. And uh, a job opportunity came up with uh, my current employer. So I I relocated from Milton at the time. I actually ended up meeting my wife while I was up here on a golf course. And the rest is history. Absolutely fell in love with the area. That's wonderful. What do you like most about the community? What what about it really has, has kept you here? This is an area where people come to vacation. So we're so blessed that we can live in this area. And on our, our days off and our downtime, to be by the water, to be in the outdoors, there's such an active 
uh, scene up here when it comes to food and beverage, when it comes to hiking, when it comes to music. And it's just a very quaint area. So I always say that I live where others vacation and uh, I, I would never change it. <laughs> for sure. It's like vacation every day. I mean, yeah. we get to see a little bit more behind the scenes, but we get to appreciate it and enjoy it as well. You're, you're, you're totally right. You have a family of children. How, how do you find uh, uh, raising children in the community? What, what kind of places and activities do you think are, are really great for family time? Our family motto is, is just to uh, create experiences and memories, even for any uh, holidays, birthdays, special occasions. We focus on that, getting outside, doing activities to create memories together as a family, whether it's on the ski hill, whether it's on the the hiking trails, whether it's on Georgian Bay, whether it's cycling, doing things together as a family will always be more memorable than than any physical material gift that that you could give, give a child. I certainly have fond memories myself growing up on a farm being outside, being active. We didn't have cable TV until I was in my teenage years. So it wasn't an option to go inside and sit in front of a device. For sure. You know, when you can draw on that experience for yourself, and I think that's one of the things about our region that's great is that you have access to that outdoor space. I remember I was chatting with Michelle Ubel from Iwa Spa, and she talked about when her family moved here, her son was so excited to be able to bike to school. And you just can't do that in the city, right? It's those little things that uh, maybe we take for granted, but it sounds like you don't. It sounds like it's something that you really embrace. And I I love that you have a family motto. Was that something that evolved? Or did you like sit down with your wife and say, okay, let's really come up with a theme for our, for how we kind of want to spend time together? Or did that just evolve? Did you just, did you just recognize that in yourself? It was always something that I believed in, in in my core values. And uh, one of the reasons my wife and I gelled so well was because we we share that same vision: strong family ties, work hard, play hard, you know, spend time together and and make memories. It has evolved over the years, and it's it's something that when life gets chaotic and busy, it's something you can revert to. It's like a some type of a guiding principle. If we've learned anything in the last year and a half, is that um, you never know what's around the corner. Things can be uh, very unpredictable and, you know, you really want to have those values as an anchor, right? So that keeps you centered and focused. And I think that's, that's great advice. I I think I'm going to, I'm going to think a little bit about how I, uh, how I do that with a bit more purpose in my own life. You you mentioned food and the food scene here. and, And one of the things that I've tracked over the last, you know, five, six years is the sort of diversity and growth in, in restaurants and food service, whether, whether it's at that, take out great experience or whether that's fine dining, uh, all different genres. It's really grown. I think it's a, a big part of why our region is so successful. And I think, you know, restaurants, they create togetherness, they create celebration. They are experiential, just like you talked about. I'm wondering if you could share with us from your perspective and your 20 year history, what makes a restaurant great? Well, I'll, I'll give you a simple answer here. Restaurants are, are all about people. It takes a very special person that possesses what we refer to as the hospitality gene to build teams that are genuinely passionate about looking after people. And that's simply what we do in restaurants is we look after other people. 
you can build four walls, you can build a restaurant anywhere in the world, but it's who you fill those four walls with, the passion that is behind them. I've seen restaurants operate at a very high level and some that have struggled. And the difference always boils down to who you have inside those four walls. That hospitality gene, as you say, there is a a privilege in taking care of people and providing service. I've I've always felt that way. And uh, I think it is is not as valued in our society as it, it really should be. But you're absolutely right. That is the magic. And that's what differentiates. So you, you're a leader in, in the, the this business. How do you create those? How do you foster that that team, that caringness, that that ability to deliver that kind of sometimes intangible experience? We're certainly always learning how we can do it better. And I think with every new generation, every new, new co- cohort that is employed with us, it changes. And I think that's it's about evolving and balance. We're constantly pivoting to determine what more we can do to make staff feel more appreciated. As an example, we offer group health benefits for our staff, servers, hosts, line cooks, etc., where they may not have the access to those services in another industry or a similar restaurant. Just saying thank you, make them feel appreciated. Staff events, hearing them, hearing their concerns. I think there's there's really three things that, if I can summarize, to that make restaurants successful or are a part of managing restaurants. The first is staff. You have to hire the right people. You have to look after them so that they stay with you for a long period of time. The second is you always have to be relentless about making sure that guests have a great experience every single time that they have, that they come into your restaurant rather. It may not always happen, but you you have to strive towards it Again, a guiding principle. The third is profitability. We're in business. We you know strive to be have a great return on the investment. But the three-step process is that if you have great people and you look after them and you just focus on making sure that guests leave happy every single time that they're in your restaurant, the third will happen. The profitability comes. The great reputation comes. Guests love your food. Staff love to work there. And it's just a very positive cycle. And I would imagine the more passionate you are about food and the more passionate you are about the the product that you're serving, the more you can sell it and promote it and encourage people to try new things and and build that that top line as well, right? That's got to be a big part of it. Absolutely. We we have an incredible team that's always doing research, always coming up with new ideas on how to stay innovative, reflect what our guests are looking for, and to react quickly and and make changes based on consumer trends. I can remember uh, a number of years ago when we did our um, rainbow ski weekend here in the village and Twist, which is one of the, the restaurants that you're involved in, the team got really involved in um, hosting an après event. And what stood out to me when I was there for part of that celebration uh, was how it was really, you could tell it was led by the, the, the team, the staff. 
they were the ones who were fully uh, decked out in great costumes. Um, they were leading the service charge. They were hosting the talent. It was really driven by the team. And I think that's why it was so successful. And just following your model, I mean, we all spent a lot of money because we were having so much fun. So I mean, it's a win-win-win, right? Yeah. On the note of profitability, I'm wondering, you know, just for those who may be, um, you know, listening, maybe new in their restaurant business, I know there's a lot of of entrepreneurs who are who are opening some very cool concepts right now. You, when you talk about profitability, what is more important to you? Is it sales growth? Is it cost management or a combination? I mean, wh- where do you focus your your energies as a as a leader? Great question. I think it, it, it is a balance of both. I constantly say that sales fix everything. If you have more sales, then some of your costs, the percentage of them become less and less. Just focusing on the sales aspect of it is it would be priority one, but then ensuring responsible cost management for sure is, is on the radar, but not at the expense of the guest experience. I philosophically align with that because I think when you're focused on sales as a priority, it also means you're focused on the experience and the customer first. And then the back end is, you know, you're managing how to be creative and and save, but it's not driving the bus. I find that businesses that allow themselves to be driven too much by that cost management can sometimes lose the magic at the top line. But like you said, those, those three pillars really help keep that all in balance. So it's tough. And I think in this past a year and a half, that has been probably one of the biggest challenges for operators is, you know, when traffic was actually controlled by capacity measures, in some respects, you had no choice but to focus a little bit more on the, the cost management. But I'm wondering for, for you, in, in the time that you've spent in this pandemic, what was that experience like? And, and how did your philosophy of management uh, change and evolve in response to COVID-19? We learned to be even better pivoters, <laughs> to try new things. Some things worked, some things didn't, but we constantly had to challenge ourselves. We had to be resilient. There was negative news and press coming at us from, from all angles and changes. Most people don't like change. So That's true. we had to learn to embrace change to, to stay ahead. And I think what we see now is most operators in all industries that survived through the pandemic were master pivoters. They figured out what worked, they changed, they redeployed their uh, workforce, and they figured out how to stay afloat during the last 16 months. So uh, applying all those principles, anything, is there any kind of like examples you could share of some of the things you had to pivot on or, or adapt or change? Sure. The takeout program skyrocketed. Uh-huh. Something that we would, we're normally passionate about uh, presentation on plates. But when you put a chicken Parmesan or a fried chicken sandwich in a plastic or cardboard box, to send it home with a guest, there's no guarantee that that presentation's going to be the same when the guest opens right. up. The we, we eat with our eyes first. If something gets tossed around in the car and it gets home and it looks more like a stir fry, then it's not going to be visually appealing to the guest. So we figured out what items traveled well for takeout and what items did not. The province had 
loosened the restrictions when it came to the sale of alcohol, beer, uh, wine for outside sales right from the restaurant, which lots of restaurants embarked upon. Some guests took advantage of it, but it was an example of a program that wasn't fully worth the uh, the efforts that were put into it. And uh, so we had to, again, constantly pivot, try something new. And prioritize, right? Absolutely. That was the hard part, I think, with so many options that were new in that kind of change management world we were all in. It was it was really easy to say yes to everything and just try it all. But you do have to kind of choose the right the right approach that fits you and and, and focus on it. We had a, a large frontline staff that we were constantly keeping in communication with. You know, there's over 100 staff members um, that we work with and all of them uh, unfortunately had to be laid off. You know, food and beverage has always been pretty resilient for all of those staff members to lose their job security. It was a big wake-up call for everyone. But what was that like for you as a leader? That must have been very difficult to see your teams you know, be laid off for a period of time. Emotionally, yeah, emotionally draining, Andrew. It, um, you're constantly a, a support for leaders and for, for staff members. We're all human at the end of the day. And we all struggled with the pandemic in one way or another, whether we want to admit it or not. It took a toll. Uh, our whole world changed around us. And people lost jobs, houses, you couldn't see their family. And we uh, removed all of the, the core structure that everyone needs and the routine that everyone had in their lives. It's a lot to process. And I think what, what has become very apparent to me is, is a lot of people who are in management positions, as you rightly said, I mean, you are, you're engaging in all that change and you are a support system for everyone around you, all of your employees, the knowledge that they have families themselves and, and all those needs. And then of course you have owners and, and partners that you have to manage. And I think what a lot of people are discovering right now was that perhaps they might have put themselves second or third and they were so in the caring mode that perhaps they've let themselves get pretty run down. And so that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm asking everyone about sort of how are you, how are you coping and how are you, how are you managing now? Sure. So how do, so how do you feel? Like, how, has it, does it feel good that uh, your the, the return is, is happening? We're in step three. You've, you've been able to bring, I'm sure, a good number of people back to work. Yes, it is. It's a breath of fresh air to see the activity in the restaurant, the music going, the food coming out on plates, the the staff laughing, the guests cheersing wine glasses. There's just something about that atmosphere within the restaurant that is just so refreshing to me. And to to not hear it, to you know, sit in a, a silent dining room and process takeout orders or try to dream up new ideas to for business just doesn't have that same knack to it that that adrenaline rush that that we crave in in the hospitality industry i think we're all uh, we're all people pleasers and so you want to you want to see those people in front of you enjoying themselves it really hit me probably 3 weeks or so ago as we were ready as we were getting into the sort of step 1 and we sort of had everything set up in the village and people started to come back that first weekend. And what I noticed was how happy everyone was and the smiles on their faces and how much they, in fact, I, I walked past Magnoni's and there was a couple 
on the the terrace and they were so happy they were like they had tears in their eyes in fact and they were so happy to be there and I stopped by and chatted with them and it just reminded me of what we do every day and I think sometimes you know experiences like this gives you the opportunity to remember why we do what we do and I think seeing everyone's appreciation for that has certainly helped me process the stress and everything else that's gone that is that we've all experienced but i'm really i think for me it's also seeing all the staff back to work and so many people back and i think it's a testament to yourself and and so many different operators who brought us everyone back that they could (laughs) (laughs) and uh, obviously we are very understaffed right now so we're in a situation where we have more jobs than people. So we have lots of opportunity. So that feels good in a way because we have this great opportunity for people to make money, come back to work and, and, uh, you know, try to try to start over. I wonder if you can share a little bit on uh, your experience on the sort of the, the labor shortage side. I have never seen the uh, labor shortage heightened this much. It's causing stress mainly, I suppose, actually for everyone involved it's very stressful for for managers and for leaders because we can't accommodate all guests we have to operate at reduced capacities we have to pace out the seating of um, tables we can't provide the services that we're so passionate about in one of our our busiest times of the year guests are not uh, necessarily that that understanding when they they see empty tables and they don't understand why they can't sit there but it's because we don't have the staff to service them properly it is slowly changing it is slowly catching up we have a very long road ahead one day at a time um, is the, is the motto right now in it gets better every day we will get there Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What do you think is are some of the contributors to the, the shortage? Do you think that there's still a hesitancy for some people to, to come back to work? Is there still some nervousness about where they are in the vaccination uh, uh, journey or, or other factors? Or, or do you think that perhaps some of the, the incentives that the government still has on the books may be resulting in a more, maybe a more choosy uh, job seeker? Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that? If we go to you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right at the top, we've got food and shelter. And directly below that, we've got safety and security. We had frontline staff members that were 
very exposed to the potential harm of COVID, the fear of COVID. So the emotional, the, the mental vaccine or the anxiety that that creates. And then in part with that was the, uh, the job security. So we had a bunch of frontline staff that realized that there, there wasn't a ton of job security in their roles. Yeah. Because of the constant shutdown and stop, start. Exactly. Yeah. Open, close, open, close. Yeah. For some, it's regaining that confidence to come off of any government supports, get back into the work workforce and get comfortable with working again to regain some sense of uh, normalcy. I'm glad you highlighted those points. And I think for all of us in the, in whatever industry we're working in, it, it requires empathy to understand those drivers. And so that we can, in our leadership positions, ensure that we can overcome some of those concerns and demonstrate that we're doing everything we can to address those. I think the challenging part that you, you mentioned is that the consumer right now is ready to get back to the things that they enjoy. So they've been locked down, you know, various stages of lockdown, stay at home for a year and a half. And when they are finally taking that time to go away with their family or, or go to dinner now that they can, and they're seeing some of those limitations, they're obviously being very, they get frustrated, right? They're, they're expecting something different. And, and I've heard this from a lot of operators that there is that, there's that expectation gap and it can be very frustrating. Do you have any advice for operators, people who work in the, in the, in the business on, on, on how to communicate some of these gaps that we have? And, you know, how do you win guests over who are a bit frustrated? It really boils down to communication. We don't need to sugarcoat anything. It is what it is. It's no different than prices are skyrocketing on all of our commodities, on every single supply that we use from takeout packaging to oil for the deep fryers to um, the price of potatoes. Pair that with higher wages. The end result is higher menu prices to maintain uh, a business model. I think we can get ahead of it. I think we can be honest and upfront with, with our guests. No different than when they're coming to the front door and they see a, a lineup. If you're honest with them, if you tell them exactly what's happening and give them the explanation, then they'll generally understand. It boils down to communication. I've seen some great social media posts from reputable restaurants just trying to get ahead of it, saying prices are going to go up. For you to dine out, it, it is going to get more expensive. We'll never regain the, the losses from the pandemic. But in order for the businesses to survive and to be there, we have to make those adjustments. It's a fact of the situation right now. I, I've seen some great posts that uh, local restaurants have put out into the community talking about that very proactively. Usually I, I read comments on those posts with a little bit of, okay, sit down, breathe well, get ready. <laughs> and um, what I found was people were so supportive. They were so, you know, thank you. We support you. We will be back. And I think that's, that, that's gotta be, that's gotta be nice to hear and experience. You know, a good example of that, we were talking when we were preparing for this discussion. What, did you say that oil in deep fryers has gone up by like doubled in price? Doubled in price. So something you 
you wouldn't even think of to prepare your French fries. <laughs> and you're thinking, why are French fries going up in price? Well, potatoes are more expensive. Oil is more expensive. And there's added shipping costs. There's a supply chain domino effect in in all of this. I guess that goes back to that discussion earlier on, on the cost management. When you're dealing with this kind of uh, expansion of costs, you really have to get creative. And I think that m- many businesses are are really just reacting to that right now. And, uh, you know, new models will emerge for sure and, and new ideas on that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you've had the, the great benefit of working in a bunch of different dynamic markets. So GTA restaurants here, Blue Mountain Village, you have a restaurant in Thornberry. I'm wondering, and, and there's and more, more, more that we haven't covered in your bio and experience, but I'm wondering... Do you see any any differences in consumer expectation in this market compared to, say, the GTA? Not not a whole lot. I think that guests will always crave a personalized dining experience. We all work hard for our money, and we like to spend it by pampering ourselves, by celebrating over food and drinks with the people that are closest to us. It's fairly simple, in theory at least. The biggest change is probably consumer information with technology, with social media. They have access to more information ahead of arriving to the restaurants. So they generally know what they already want to order. They've looked at pictures. They've looked at reviews. They have ironed out every single thing and planned out their entire night. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah, I I don't think that there's um, been a lot of changes. Um, I think that we all still like to spend our hard-earned money pampering ourselves. The other point that you made, particularly on the the social media, the, the digital tools that consumers have, it's so cultural. It's embedded in us now. It's how we operate when we make, we don't just call and make a reservation anymore. We plan ahead. We check the reviews. Like you said, um, we have our menu items chosen. So that is kind of a universal trend in, in food and probably one of the ones that is, is most impactful and it'll cut across wherever you are. It's, that's insightful. Uh, I've heard a lot of restaurateurs get sometimes very frustrated by the user reviews and and the way in which the consumer is very able to share a positive or negative experience. And I've heard some restaurateurs talk about how much they love the feedback because it's an opportunity to learn and share. You know, where do you land on that spectrum and how do you use reviews and, and social commentary to improve the business? I'm divided on it for several reasons. I would much rather that a guest's pulls me aside or pulls one of our managers aside at a restaurant, at a business, and addresses it right then and there so that we have the opportunity to correct it. There's a massive human element in restaurants, so there's bound to be mistakes. What I disagree with is the reviews going online and you don't have an opportunity to A, have the review removed, and B, there's, there's no course correction on it. It's there. It's online. It's there forever. So it, it may not be a, an honest reflection of how things are operating at the business. Let's say there's a thousand people that come through the restaurant on a Saturday night. One of them leaves a one-star review. One leaves a four-star review. And no one else does a review. The online perception is a two 
2.75, whatever, whatever that is, which is not a reflection of the actual operations of the business. When guests are looking at reviews, it's important to read through them, to decipher where are the one-offs that are, you know, just an upset guest that couldn't be recovered and what is actually happening. Do you have the philosophy of engaging online and reaching out and connecting, uh, or do you sort of leave them as a, a sort of a separate place to just learn? Absolutely. Um, my, uh, my preference is to speak with the guests on the phone. There's so much emotion in these reviews. The objective of a leader is to take the emotion out of it, focus on the content, what's there, what can we learn from? And you can find out so much more by having a conversation with someone in person, on the phone, and I can correct it. For sure. Uh, one thing I can say that I think you're doing very well is I know that when people look at review sites and they see that the business has interacted, even if it is, hi, I see your comments, let's connect offline and have a chat to, to, to fix it. I think people see that as a, as a sign that a business is, uh, is willing to engage. And I think that's a really great way to, to show customers who are finding those reviews uh, that you're an open business. And I think that's important. Um, I want to congratulate you and your colleagues on the on the launch of Mother Tongue in Blue Mountain Village. I wonder if you can share a little bit with us on, uh, on on what that concept is all about. Well, this this has been a a work in progress over the over the pandemic. We worked tirelessly on construction and getting the restaurant up and running, and it was definitely no easy feat. Uh, but we are very excited to to have opened the doors at um, at Mother Tongue in Blue Mountain. Uh, just five weeks ago. The original Mother Tongue location uh, was open in Toronto in 2018. Uh, we're very excited to, to showcase the offering in Blue Mountain Village. The entire menu, the design and cocktails are a massive collab- collaboration from our in-house design team, uh, our chef, Francis Bergemo, and the relentless passion from the owners, uh, Renee and Bruce Turner. Mother Tongue is an Asian bistro. So there's a lot of influences from Southeast Asia and Chinatown, with classic noodle dishes, mm-hmm. homemade dumplings, pad thai, and a massive uh, handcrafted cocktail list, and wine pairings, and voila, here we are. We have heard from guests that this is exactly what Blue Mountain Village needed, and we're, we're so proud of what our team has accomplished there. We're just so excited to see where, where this can go. Yeah, it is really exciting. And I, and I love how uh, our sort of collective offerings are, are at the end of the day, bringing uh, food diversity and a variety of choice for such a diverse customer base. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's spot on in terms of the right concept, the right place, and, and it's so well executed. Uh, how are customers responding? Uh, they, they, can't, <laughs> they can't wait to get in. That's great. <laughs> No, it's, it's been very, very positive. The patio overlooks the Mill Pond. The Blue Mountain uh, Village Association has added live music on the pond. and Or you can sit inside. There's a, a beautiful mural that you have to visit to check out. It's stunning. There's actually a, there's a time-lapse video on our, on our Instagram reel of that mural being done in a lapsed fashion. And is it spray paint? It's like a graffiti artist or is it, how was it done? All by cans of spray paint. Wow. Absolutely remarkable to watch the, this uh, artist out of Toronto do that. Congratulations. Uh, we look forward to seeing what you, what you do in the, in the business and how it grows and evolves and congrats.
Thank you. I want to shift gears again. Uh, you are a director on the Blue Mountains Chamber of Commerce. Yes, I am. How long have you? Uh, how long have you had this role? It's been about six months since I joined the chamber. I'm not sure how I ended up on the chamber, but I, they had a, a void, and I think I had extra time during the pandemic. So here we are, and um, it's such a such a great group of people that advocates for the businesses in a, in our community. Yeah, I mean, every successful community and economy really relies on a, a local chamber of commerce to really pull the voices of the business community together and, uh, you know, bring some leadership, help us network and connect. And at the end of the day, make sure that our voice is heard. So bravo to you. And I think volunteering on on community initiatives like this only enriches your own skill set and learnings and it makes you a better leader at the end of the day. Now, I know the town is, you know, our, the municipality of the town of Blue Mountains and the region, you know, we're dealing with a lot of heady issues. You know, right now, what is, um, you know, what are some of the biggest issues that, uh, that from the chamber perspective that the town you think are, are grappling with or need to prioritize? I believe one of the biggest learnings being on the, the chamber thus far is that there's so many different industries in our area. We get segregated into hospitality you know, services, um, development, et cetera, et cetera. But we all face a lot of the same issues and the same challenges. So having the chamber as a voice to kind of pull together those parallel issues is, is just such a great benefit. The main concern that we hear from uh, local businesses in all industries is the, the shortfalls in, in both skilled and, and unskilled labor. Businesses are are struggling, um, as we noted before, to to operate at full capacity due to this. Residents have relocated to the area due to COVID, but they may not work locally. They're not contributing to the workforce. But they still have expectations of services living in the area. So that combined with a shortage of attainable housing has created this perfect storm of of labor shortage that we've never seen before. What's interesting is it's not new. We've known about this challenge for quite a while and we've been working on it for quite a while, but I do believe that coming together of all of our sectors to really uh, advocate change seems to be difficult. I'm wondering in your experience thus far and you know, with your chamber hat on, what are the barriers? What do you think we need to be doing as, as uh, of multiple sectors to uh, solve that problem? We are often just very reactive to situations. I can pull in the Attainable Housing uh, Corporation in, in Blue Mountains here. I know you've, you've personally been working on that, that project for a number of years. And these things take time for policies, zoning changes. Yeah. And if we can get ahead of it when it comes to a, a building perspective, we'd be in a, a much better position. As, a, as the chamber, our goal is to influence policy and decision-making at a, a various levels of government so that these things get in motion before we need them. We can reference a water treatment plant in Collingwood that is coming up to capacity. We can re reference lack of housing, it, all types of housing in the entire Blue Mountains uh, municipality. And you say we knew about these issues, and we absolutely did. We just 
chose not to make it a priority to act on five years ago. 10 years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago. Sure. Sad, yeah. When you look in other parts of the world, there are roads that are built and hospitals that are built and communities that are zoned and planned and in development before they're needed. Yes, the way to go. We can learn a lot from that approach. So short-term thinking is kind of what you're what you're you're observing. Do you think there's any other factors that are keeping us from getting there? Is it a is it local government willingness? Is it uh, local opposition? What do you think? It's still up in the air. I don't know. There's no magic switch that is that we can flip that is going to solve all of this. But we all need to kick and scream louder until we're heard, and that every member of the community realizes that they need this housing and, and labor shortfall to get fixed so that they can enjoy the services that they expect. Of course, yeah. We're not going to realize the promise and the potential of our community in all of these forms if we don't deal with some of those infrastructure gaps and, and foresee them. You're absolutely right. And I, I strongly believe that every business operating in this town needs to be a member of the chamber. And every business in this town needs to actively participate the networking events are great, and that's really important. And there's one coming up, in fact, right? Uh, August 11th? August 11th at uh, Winifred's patio in Thornbury, yeah. So I, I think everyone needs to get engaged. I think everyone is so looking forward to networking again in person. But we need to we need a critical mass on that chamber so that the board can work with members so we can get our advocacy where it needs to be. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm looking for from the chamber is, is leadership and momentum on those issues that matter and pulling us all together, because I think together we are stronger and you know a good chamber will will bring us all together so uh you have my full support on that and any anything that i can do to help i i'm I'm happy to be uh, of service but i think it's great that you're there i think you bring a great perspective because you operate in many different parts of the community you're not just village focused you're not just thornbury focused you you have a, a broader world view so to speak or a broader local view because you you've worked in both of those areas, sort of Thornbury and Blue Mountains, the Blue Mountain Village. I'm wondering if you have any advice that you could share on how each of those destinations, what can we learn from each other? What can operators in Blue Mountain Village learn from the operators in Thornbury and vice versa? Probably going to uh, uh, ruffle some feathers here, but... um... It's what it's all about. You know me. (laughs) I I, I don't shy from that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Together, we are stronger. We talked, Andrew, in preparing for this about um, about divisions, uh, divisions being tourists versus locals, Thornbury versus Collingwood, the village versus uh, you know downtown Collingwood. And we're all in this together. We all have best practices that we've learned in different industries. Uh, we all have insight that can be applied and we can learn from each other. And it's a domino effect. If we don't have housing, then we can't house workers. And if we can't house workers, then they're not going to move to the area and start families. So then there's not a need for growth in schools and in classrooms, which changes the demand for teachers and uh, ECEs and healthcare. Yeah. Healthcare. Um, So it may seem like it doesn't directly affect people um, or certain people, 
I think that's where we need to step back, think from the hundredth floor of the elevator, look down over everything and, you know, and put our pride or egos aside and start working together more. Our residents have expectations of services. Our tourists and visitors have expectations of services. And if we don't have those, then then everyone loses. The town sustainability strategy right now, they're they're trying to reach out to as many different cohorts as possible to to get some expectations and feedback on how to create a great sustainable community. And I was really surprised that there was opposition to the town's um, uh, telephone booth to get feedback. It was put in places where visitors might be and people were upset about that. They didn't want the visitors to have a voice. And I thought it was really puzzling because sustainability is about getting everyone to play a role. And so you really need everyone to play a role. So I think sometimes our our boundaries are driving the bus a little more than what we're trying to achieve. And I think that's you know something we're going to have to do. Sure. Final, final question for you. I had a great interview uh, a number of weeks ago with Michelle Harris. So she is from uh, the municipality of Gray Highlands. Uh, she coined this term new local pioneers and it's really about you know this this new generation of young local families and entrepreneurs and business leaders who are coming here and and really really redefining what small business is and redefining our service culture and economic growth and i you fit right into that camp you are one of the leaders of that cohort uh, i'm wondering what do you think we need to be thinking about you know over the next 5 to 10 years to really make sure that that new generation of business leader, manager can be successful? What, what do you think we need to do? I, th- I think we've touched on most items already, Andrew. I think that the housing crisis is at the core of it. Anyone that is starting a young family is already financially burdened, or most of them are. Um, so they're going to put down roots in affordable communities. They're going to put it simple, go where they can afford to live. We want to attract skilled workers from different different areas and they have to have somewhere to live. A very simple um, summary would be that we see people moving outside of Collingwood and Thornbury because the the prices are are not affordable. And that could be people moving to the area or people that grew up and reside in the area that can no longer afford to purchase here. So they end up looking outside of our communities. So we all lose. Yeah. It's one thing to work in a community. It's another thing to live in it, be committed to it uh, and feel that it embraces you as well. Isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that is the task at hand for all of us, I think. Well, I want to thank you for uh, all the time that you've given us and you really shared some great insights. And, uh, you know, a couple of things are going to stand out for me from from this conversation going forward. One, I love your concept of a family mission or a family vision and what that means. You know, you reminded us that no matter what the business, but particularly in food, it's all about the people. That's your differentiator uh, and the experience that you provide. And um, in dealing with what we're we're going through, and trying to manage consumers' expectations and, and juggling all of these these new realities of post-COVID. Your advice on be honest, be upfront, and communicate, and that's going to keep us all in, in great shape. So 
thank you for those insights and many more. And uh, I look forward to uh, having a glass of wine with you sometime soon uh, on the terrace at Mother Tongue. That's great. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.